This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations and most interesting conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. And today, Good Faith Fam, well, I don't know how else to put this. We have on the show today my favorite writer right now, period. I'm like beyond excited. I don't know what else to say. He was a writer for ESPN, The Athletic, wrote an awesome book on the Durant Golden State years called The Victory Machine. And he's now the proprietor of the best substack that I subscribe to, House of Strauss. He's Ethan Strauss. And we're going to talk about sports, culture, decadence, and much more. But first, let's set the stage. So this week, every synagogue, at least in the world, is going to read the biblical narrative of the exodus from Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, and so on. This is almost certainly the most influential story in the history of Western civilization. And as far as America in particular is concerned, you know, David Brooks from the New York Times came on this very podcast a few weeks ago. He made the relatively straightforward claim that America is an exodus nation. We've been deeply shaped by this story. And that's pretty remarkable because when you think about it, the story of the book of Exodus should not work. Like at all, because after the Israelites leave Egypt, I mean, spoiler alert, the narrative, at least on paper, gets really boring from there. The pitch basically is, so you know how the Israelites are super annoying, they're whining, they're complaining all the time. So what if, stick with me here, we spend another 40 years with this same crew in a desert doing nothing? How does that sound? And like, honestly, it just sounds horrible. And yet when you actually read it, it is really captivating and it works even just on a literary level and you know centuries upon centuries kind of testifies to that so why is that and obviously there are a ton of ways you can answer the question depending on whether you're a theologian an art historian a literary critic or what have you but for me the answer is that there's something really helpful even mesmerizing about a space like a desert that on the one hand stays pretty much the same even as the whole world is changing drastically around it but that on the other hand somehow at the very same time also helps explain in really vivid ways how the world got from point A to point B like in the case of the book of Exodus the ancient world literally changes while the Israelites are wandering in the desert the beginning of this period so archaeologists would tell you that we're in the late Bronze Age but by the end of this period all of a sudden we're in the Iron Age as people from the Aegean migrate to the ancient Near East and they bring iron weapons with them. I'm a historian by training, so I'm a nerd. But the Bible is really intentional about explaining the significance of this shift. And at the very same time, while all this is going on and while the Bible explains this, the Israelites are also just in kind of this like unchanging landscape, learning lessons and making lots of mistakes, of course, but totally oblivious to the world outside them. So the desert's both a stable alternative to a shifting world and a way to help understand that shifting world. And I think the best contemporary parallel to that, at least in my life, is the world of sports. And for me in particular, it's basketball. It's the NBA. Like, you can watch games from the Bill Russell era, the Magic Bird era, Jordan, Kobe, LeBron, beyond, and you genuinely feel like you're part of this stable tradition in an unstable world, and it's really helpful. The game's the same, even if the styles are different, and that's that's comforting. But at the same time, stories are how we make sense of the world. And the best NBA writers have always understood that since the league's often a source of incredible stories, they can use that subject matter as a way to help explain or gain insight into the wider world. And I want to spend this episode unpacking that. So I brought on one of the best people on the planet doing that right now. He was the Golden State Warriors beat reporter for ESPN, if I recall. He then did the same thing for The Athletic. He's the author of an incredible book on the Warriors dynasty called The Victory Machine. And now he's the proprietor of, as I said, my favorite substack, period. 
House of Strauss. He's Ethan Strauss. Ethan, thank you so much for being here. Hi, what an intro. I need to, I need to start going to Temple. I mean, apparently this is my audience. <laughs> You're invited for Shabbat. Let's do this. Okay. So back when the trendy NBA argument was like Jordan versus LeBron, back when that was all we had to argue about. So I had this theory that the league had like shifted stories, right? So the old story about greatness, the Jordan story was like apex predator who ruthlessly vanquished every foe, completely bent the game to his will, right? The guy against whom every other talent gets measured. And in terms of story of mythology, that's the story of Hercules, right? That's one type of hero's narrative, conqueror. But then there's the new story and the kind I think most modern fans would tell about LeBron, right? So he's an unparalleled warrior who wins many battles and sometimes single-handedly turns the tide against overwhelming odds. But ultimately, he's actually kind of like a tragic figure who's brought low by forces beyond his control. So like what you would hear about LeBron, which you would never hear about Jordan, is like, look how far he dragged those Cavs teams both before and after Miami, even if they lost. Or look how close he made it against the Spurs teams with like a way superior scheme. Or man, what a bummer to be the victim of an unsmooth salary cap and then have to face off against, you know, Curry, Durant, LeBron, you know, Clay and Draymond. And at the end of the day, that's not the story of a demigod conqueror. That's not Hercules. That's Achilles. And it's a completely different type of hero's narrative. Now, when I read your book about the Warriors during the Durant era, I thought of this because when you chronicle just how unlikable they ended up being, it struck me that the problem was they didn't have a story. Yes. They just had stats and rings. And that's just not enough. So does that ring true to you? And what does the future of storytelling and narrative look like for the NBA now? Yeah, the exact phrase I thought of, and I might have used it there, because people ask me, they go, well, why didn't Durant stay? If Durant had stayed, they would have won so much. How foolish of him to leave. I'm a little more sympathetic to his leaving because the sense I got, phrase I'm using their story had run out. They were no longer a story. They didn't totally know why they were doing what they were doing. I just remember at one point, there was somebody, he was in Steph Curry's camp. He looked out at the court and he said to me, there are no wins here because expectations for that particular team, for those listening, if you don't know, it was the greatest assemblage of talent ever. You could never really do better than expectations. Maybe if you won every game, you could do it. That's not very motivating. At a certain point, it's immiserating for people people who really want credit and Kevin Durant is that guy. I think that's a great observation by you. It's a great way to put it. Their story was not a story. And so there needed to be some sort of shift, right? It was like a Silicon Valley hack almost, Mm. right? Meaning it was like a technological advance. It wasn't like a narrative advance. Yeah. And it was that, it was that very Silicon Valley. It was a monopolistic move. They had beaten the game, but that's not very fun. It's like in Jurassic Park, T-Rex doesn't want to be fed, actually. It might work in business, uh, but T-Rex wants to hunt. (laughs) And it seemed like there was no more hunting. They had such an advantage over these other teams until they all collapsed into ruin and injury in 2019. But yeah, it wasn't too fun. But it's funny that you're talking about the NBA in this context of Greek mythology, because it is perfect for that. I think one of the reasons is this. These great teams, these dynasties, they end tragically, not in a prosaic fashion. In football, dynasties end because of injury or just time. Guys get old. That's how it goes. It's really the same in other sports. In the NBA, it's the most Greek uh, mythological traits of them all that bring these dynasties down. It's ego. That's typically what happens in the NBA. These dynasties end before they should because the people involved aren't sated by whatever is happening and turn on one another. It, It just seems to happen in the NBA. Shaq and Kobe famously with the Lakers, for instance, had that kind of breakup. David Halberstam's 
book, looking at the Portland Trailblazers, is so transfixing. It's not about the time the Blazers won the championship in the 70s with Bill Walton. It's about how they fall apart afterwards. Uh, there's just something about the NBA that lends itself to those tragic stories. You know, it's funny because when you think about the NBA that way, it, you know, it sounds like it should be so just action packed, right? Like you have all these clashing egos and, you know, all the drama and, you know, dynasties melting down as opposed to just breaking down. And at the same time, I remember you mentioned, I think it was like in an essay for Substack or maybe it was on Twitter, that the best way to understand your book on the Warriors dynasty, uh, The Victory Machine, was through the lens of decadence. And can you unpack what that means? Meaning, how do you have a league that's so dramatic that also can best be understood as kind of like repetitive? <laughs> well, it had gotten there. Again, it seemed like as the Warriors story had run out, uh, so too had the leagues. And it was trying to gin up some kind of interest, but it wasn't organic. And you could see it through the rule changes. You could see it through the strategy where it was just shoot a bunch of threes, flop a lot for free throws. Hey, we did some market research and it says people really like scoring. That typical thing where people doing the research don't have an intuitive understanding of humanity. So we'll juice up <laughs> the scoring with uh, by allowing guys to shoot a bunch of three-pointers and allow guys to shoot a bunch of free throws. Because what do fans love more than watching a high score that's generated from frequent stoppages and free throws? And points, right? Yes, because points good. Exactly. It was that sort of decadence. It was that sort of sense that it wasn't real anymore. It didn't feel real. It didn't seem like the players had much of any connection to the teams they represented. And the Warriors, I think, connected with the public in large measure initially before Durant got there because there seemed to be an organic joyousness to it. They were a team that grew up before the sporting public's eyes. And all of a sudden, when they get Kevin Durant, they beat the game. It's too much. And not only is it decadent in the sense of having so much advantage, like it's decadent to have too much food, it's just decadent in the sense of the sport having then been exhausted and having less to the public. So I feel like there's something important in the fact that the dominant metaphor for like bad faith arguing on social media comes from the basketball vocabulary, right? Like dunking on people. Like growing up and even today, there's nothing more satisfying than the poster dunk, right? Precisely because it's so disrespectful and the satisfaction you get from it has nothing to do with winning, right? Because it's the same two points. So like when we talk about how our politics has become so unserious, which is a theme of your, of your writing, um, or at least one of the themes, and it has. I mean, nowadays, it's all just like shunning the deplorables or owning the libs or whatever. But I feel like it's not so much that politics has become unserious as that it's be just become more like sports, right? We've imported the spectator sports aesthetic into politics. So why did this happen and how do we fix it to the extent it's a problem? Now I'm still stuck on that observation of yours. I never really thought about that, about how... Uh, the metaphor, the main metaphor in political discourse is borrowed from basketball. And then you start to really unpack it. Let's you do think it. <laughs> about dunking. Well, what's what's the deal with dunking? There's something funny about it because it is two points. That's all it is when it happens. And yet everybody watching it tries to make it more than what it is and tries to make it as though the person who was dunked on has been destroyed and RIP. And there's an element of joking, but it's also trying to add something extra to the moment, a layer of humiliation to it that then prevents defensive players from doing their jobs. They don't want to get caught in that scenario. Oh, that's a great point. Shaquille O'Neal, nobody can find a clip of him getting dunked on. He never wanted to be in a poster. It made him a worse player. So perhaps because we're in a world where everybody is afraid of being dunked on metaphorically 
it's very similar to the basketball world where they're not doing their jobs and they're not representing their opinions honestly and they're not arguing against opinions they know to be stupid or wrong. Yeah, there's a lot there, man. I lost the thread of whatever you asked me because that was such a great observation. <laughs> I mean, it kind of, you know what it reminds me of? I kind of have this feeling, which I guess is sacrilegious for my sort of like younger millennial. I guess I'm like the Oregon Trail generation. So I'm like halfway between like young and old millennials. I mean, like I always joke with my friends that if you know someone who died of cholera, you were either born in like 1880 or 1980, but I kind of feel like a lot of this started with The Daily Show. And I know that you're not supposed to say that, but that was the earliest context I remember in which it wasn't just arguments and it wasn't even just incendiary. Like you could find incendiary stuff on cable way before that. It was the first time where I heard political arguments in front of an audience that could cheer for one side or the other. You know what I mean? Yeah. You would go on and Jon Stewart would dominate you, not necessarily by by making better points, although sometimes he would do that also, but he would dominate because he had like home court advantage. You know what I mean? It was a combination of home court advantage while simultaneously being the underdog. Uh, that was a time where conservatism had the whip hand politically and culturally, which is probably unimaginable to people in their 20s today. And so it made him more likable to go up against those forces and to speak out against the Iraq war. But what often ends up happening, I've noticed, you've got this weird dynamic where you see a pioneer and they're very influential, but I don't necessarily love what they influence. I don't necessarily enjoy the imitators. You can't do it like they do it. I enjoy Jon Stewart back then. Same, right. Not sure if I so much enjoy him now. I, I haven't checked out his new show, but I enjoyed him then. I don't enjoy the coaching tree so much. I feel that way in my industry. I mean, I think Zach Lowe is a genius. I think he's brilliant. He has a particular style. For whatever reason, when I read a generation of writers who are influenced by Lowe, I don't enjoy them doing it. I enjoy Zach Lowe doing it. I don't enjoy their version of doing it. Sometimes there are people who are influential and what they influence is actually, it's a modality that lends itself to creativity and expression that you want to check out. But other times, for whatever reason, it's not. And I think in this case with Stewart, that format, that style, I mean... I don't I don't enjoy the repetitive John Oliver lecture at the audience show. I know like it really it feels like the dunk contest today as opposed to like the old dunk contest, right? Like, yes, I totally hear what you're saying about the coaching tree also. Yeah. And with Oliver, too, it just feels very formulaic. But maybe some of that is just my response to how what is it doctrinaire they've gotten. I mean, I saw a clip of John Oliver as I was doing some research on gambling and sports, and uh, he had something on fantasy sports and gambling. And I watched it and I was immersed in it. And I thought, oh my God, this is actually really good. Um, when was this? I hope it was recently so I can use it. So like, nope, it was 2015. And it was, uh, aha, everything good in this sphere comes pre-Trump. Trump completely killed it. So that's the other aspect. <laughs> so actually speaking of this sort of larger conversation, so you've made this transition kind of from the sports arena to sort of the broader social commentary arena so much more seamlessly than you know, like the Republic at large. I mean, in the sense that you've traveled from sports journalism, to social commentary, but you've done it really well. What have you learned from that journey and why did it work for you? Um, I mean, there are people who don't think it worked for me, <laughs> but they're not welcome on this podcast. <laughs> no, they are. They aren't. They're banished. 
I think I have something to say. Maybe that's one aspect. That sounds arrogant, but that's where it comes from. I feel things, I think about things, and I want to articulate them. I want to tease them out, and they are genuine. It's funny. There's You're talking about dunking on people. It seems like another common tactic is to just pretend that people's opinions are some sort of grift or some sort of put on for, I don't know, uh, to make money or I don't even I don't even know what. It seems like a way to avoid certain arguments that you find are difficult to interface with. That's my take anyway. I think that the transition has been relatively seamless because I have something to say. I often do connect it to the sports world. And frankly, it's a big market inefficiency because there's so much obvious stuff out there, seeing observations that seem unsayable within prestige sports media. And I don't want to seem arrogant. I think a lot of my colleagues, former colleagues are great at what they do, but they do have a very narrow band of acceptable thought and acceptable opinion, especially when the sports and the politics cross over. It seems like they're trying to shrink the Overton window smaller than what most people can fit in in the United States. And that actually is a huge theme of your writing. It's one of the things that resonates most with me precisely because it's so out of character in sports writing these days, right? It's the idea of telling obvious truths that everybody knows are true, but that you're not allowed to say. Two examples that I love for you was just sort of saying, Ben Simmons, this kind of sounds like baloney. Like, of course, mental health is such an important thing, but this kind of sounds like baloney. And the other one was sort of Rachel Nichols. Like, why wouldn't any of us expect Rachel Nichols to act differently than she acted? And how bad is it really the way she behaved in private? We all have private lives. It's like a normal thing. And you've basically used Substack to kind of free yourself from that dynamic. But is sports writing, or I guess just journalism in general, doomed if you can't make the leap to Substack? Or is there a way out that can actually scale? Well, it's never doomed. I think these opportunities, the market inefficiency, somebody seizes upon it, but it is very constrained anywhere where it's institutional beyond possibly a few sites or a couple sites. It does seem right now that basically the scene is this. You write for a prestige sports media outlet and you have to be aligned culturally with the left or you're at Outkick the Coverage, which is, I guess, formerly uh, aligned with Trump world. I mean, it's there's something very very interesting. There's an interesting story there. I should probably write it about how Clay Travis, the proprietor of Outkick, went from an apolitical sports blogger to the literal heir to Rush Limbaugh, who has taken over his time slot. That, that's an interesting trajectory. And I think we can learn a lot about what's gone on in American politics from it. But between those places, I guess I'm saying there's a lot there. <laughs> there's a lot there. <laughs> uh, you can talk about a lot. And it just seems like the Overton window, like I was saying, it's so narrow. And that's even more of a weakness for prestige sports media because the dynamics are shifting imperceptibly to them, I think. I don't think they know that right now the United States is polling at R plus eight for the midterms. Who knows what it will be in 2022? But they talk about these things. They talk about conservatism, Republicans, like they're these fringe freak taboo cultists where you'd be shocked to meet them. I mean, I enjoyed, there was a Saturday Night Live sketch, Republican or not. Oh, it was so good. And it was funny. 
it was funny. I mean, the whole game of it is the, the contestants are trying to guess whether somebody is a Republican or not. But it also spoke to this odd sense of being shocked that somebody you know happens to be Republican. I'm looking at him going, that's going to be most voters next election. And not by a little, most likely. There is something very strange where you almost can't even interface with that group of people that constitutes perhaps most people. And I'm not a strict majoritarian in the sense. I'm not saying that whatever most people believe is the thing to support. I'm saying that it gets odd when you regard what most people believe as beyond the pale and impossible to even analyze in a dispassionate sense. That's where, to me, it's gone completely crazy. And it's probably opened up a lot of territory for somebody to explore if they want to look into those issues. So I want to do my part as a very loyal House of Strauss reader to make House of Straussisms happen, uh, which was a call that you recently put out. <laughs> so one of the ones I want to make happen is red zoning because it relates to what you were just describing. How does red zoning happen and what does it do? Great. I love it. Okay. So red zoning, I'm trying to coin on the back of Aaron Rodgers, quarterback, football player, scores a lot in the red zone. And what happened for those who don't know and probably most listening to know, Rodgers got COVID. It was revealed that he had not taken the vaccine. He talked about it on a very popular YouTube show with a former football player, Pat McAfee. He explained his position. He used words that normies now use like cancel culture and woke mob. He took great pains to say that he isn't a Republican, that he's not of the left or of the right, that he wouldn't go on Fox News or CNN for that matter. But it really did not matter because almost uniformly in the publications of Prestige, uh, Sports Illustrated, ESPN, the newspapers, he was regarded as a conservative freak show. And I call this red zoning. It's when you take somebody who is apolitical and because they are not with, I suppose, the left suite of opinions, you zone them as red, even if they themselves are saying, hey, I'm an independent voter. I'm not necessarily a red voter. They get zoned that way. Joe Rogan, I think it's an obvious example. He says, I'm nonpartisan. He says, I, I want to interview Bernie Sanders. He says, I like Bernie Sanders. I'd vote for that guy. But because of some of his other opinions, because of some of his guests, the broader media zones him red. And lo and behold, I think getting zoned red increases the odds that you do go in the red direction because there's this other dynamic to it, which is a lot of these people are independent voters. And what are independent voters going to be attitudinally attracted to? I think they're going to be attitudinally attracted to the party that doesn't try to control them. That's why they're independent in the first place. They conceive of themselves as having their own minds and having their own takes. So if one side is saying, you have to agree with us 100% or you're damned, and that's the dominant messaging, and the other side is saying, hey, you can kind of pick and choose a bit, where are they going to be drawn to? So I think red zoning is not only a phenomenon that describes what the media is doing, I also think it's a phenomenon that describes in a way why a lot of independent voters are shifting uh, to the Republican Party as we saw in the recent election in Virginia. So if I think about the question of why be a sports fan. And let's say you're not satisfied purely with, you know, the rest and relaxation explanation, meaning I want to know how being a sports fan contributes to human flourishing. And let's say I assume the answer is that it does. So what I'd say is that first and foremost, it helps you cultivate a sense of awe in the face of excellence and transcendence. And it does so in a situation where the human stakes are low enough that things like jealousy or anxiety or whatnot don't really get in the way. And I don't know exactly how to put my finger on it, but I feel like sports fandom 
system, not the athletes themselves, but the fans, or at least the brands making content for fans, is trying really hard to move on from awe. And to me, the clearest illustration of this is now it's like a thing for GMs to have fans, right? Like there are Daryl Morey fans, there are Sam Hinkie fans, like Trust the Process fans, there are Masai Ujiri fans, which is totally insane to me. Like, of course, GMs are crucially important, but that's like wearing a BlackRock or like Bridgewater Associates jersey, right? You see what I'm saying, right? <laughs> yeah. Like where did awe and transcendence go in sports fandom or at least in sports coverage or branding? Well, I'm a little stuck on the GM aspect because it's a little weird to be a fan of a GM, but GMs are sticky in our culture, not because of they're a cult of personality, but because they're generally selling an idea that allows them a certain amount of uh, penetration into the cultural consciousness. Billy Bean, the A's GM, uh, who is the subject of Moneyball, never won a World Series, but we associate him with a big idea, an idea that businessmen who buy these books in airports are into and can apply to their own businesses. So in that way, he wins. I think Bob Myers of the Golden State Warriors, their GM, people would be a little mystified why the credit never flowed in his direction. And I even would tell him, I just said, look, it's all about ideas. You know, if you have a big idea to sell, if you were selling the public on this is what I did that made the Warriors win, uh, then you would have so much more traction. So I don't necessarily think that the gravitation to the GM is such a bad thing. I like the idea of people being into ideas as they are with Daryl Morey, who has his own idea, as they are with Sam Hinkie, who has his own idea. But the idea that you're putting forth of people getting away from awe, I'm not sure about that. I hadn't really thought about that aspect of it, to be honest, that that's the value in sports. I've been struggling with this. I asked Matt Taibbi this on my podcast. Is this a net positive or a net negative? It's a great episode, by the way. Oh, thank you. Is this good for us or is this an opiate of the masses. I think on balance, good, but you could also see how it might be a distraction or bad in some contexts. I think some of the things I like about it is it's a connection point for society. It's a place where people can gather, have communal experiences. People do learn good things from it. It's exercise, but everything is determined by degree. Poison is determined by the dose. And I do think there can be a form of American sports fandom where it kind of goes in the direction that you don't want to go. I feel that way a little bit about the NFL where people just spend all day on a Sunday sitting in their on their couch like that doesn't feel healthy at a certain point it feels like too much and if we get into the daily fantasy and the gambling, that's a whole other conversation. I don't think I've answered your question well at all. I've gone on a million riffs, but those are my extemporaneous thoughts. No, it actually is right where I was hoping to go. You actually had a great article about sort of the evolution of Nike ads, and it got me thinking in this direction, right? So, you know, here, you know, as I, I say often in this podcast, I'm like a religious nut, you know, so I'm like a super religious dude and I take, you know, my faith really seriously, or at least I try to. And for me, I don't think sports is sort of like like an obligatory element of the good life. I certainly don't think that. But if I think about what it does for me, maybe uniquely, is it gives me a way to really admire the incredible amount of work, perseverance, and passion that needs to go into doing something really well so that you can perform it flawlessly when it really counts, right? Like, that's what religion is for me. But at the same time, I kind of was really captivated by a point that you had made about sort of contrasting old Nike ads with new Nike ads. And I like grew up like in the era when Nike was just like, it was like the, you know, it was sort of like the Apex Air Jordan era where it was just, it was like the coolest thing. I loved those ads and I know they're so commercial, but I love them. They're amazing. And now it feels like ads are about anything other than, yeah. than excellence in sports, right? So how do, how do you navigate or how do you explain that transition? I mean, 
mean, that's I, I spent 5,000 words trying and I'm still trying to get my arms around it because it's bizarre. It's kind of a simple formula. You give us something to aspire to or admire, as you say, and we stand in awe of it. In many Nike ads, you add a little bit of irreverence or some self-deprecation where the athletes are joking about themselves and we enjoy that as well. But now there's been a shift in the Nike ads to scold us with political lectures that don't seem all that germane to the pursuit of athletic excellence. And these ads are not charismatic. I'm sick of the way that criticisms of these things are beat back. I do think it's an artifact of the vanguardism that was passed down to us from the boomers, the sense of whatever is new and in vogue and radical chic, if you don't get it or you don't like it, well, then you're just old and you need to get with it. There is that sense. But you look at these ads and they're just bad. They're not good. They're not going to be talked about. They're not going to be remembered like some of the great Nike soccer ads of your like Nike soccer players versus the devil. Au revoir. Yeah. Au revoir. Or the, the Michael Jordan, Spike Lee. They're not. You know, these are artifacts of culture. They will not be that. And it's not because of anything other than how bad they are. I mean, that's the main reason. And then the question is, well, why is Nike making terrible advertisements that nobody wants to watch? It's a dovetailing of a few different dynamics. One is that this company has had their own reckoning on Me Too. They had executives ousted, presumably for sexual harassment. I don't know the nitty gritty of everything that happened within that company, but they've had their own reckoning. So what happens when that happens? Well, it seems like in America, America, at least, when these institutions have these failings, they externalize. We saw that with the Oscars after Me Too, didn't we? Where people come up and they make their speeches and they direct it at you, like you did something. Like, you know, we need to stop doing this with women. Da, 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 and you go, hey, is there any self criticism here about how you guys might be uniquely bad? I mean, that you got the casting couch. It's like, we need to stop enabling Harvey Weinstein. I'm like, that was a you problem. <laughs> you, Bob, in Iowa needed to say something about Harvey a little bit sooner, just a little bit sooner. So that ends up happening where they externalize what's happening internally. And suddenly the Nike ads become about literally lectures about the patriarchy. I know that sounds unbelievable to your listeners who have not seen these things, but yeah, that actually, it's actually happening in their recent ads. Um, so that's one dynamic, but then there's also a business dynamic that happens. I call it undecided whale, where a company gets dominant in a certain market and it's got this uh, embedded growth. What is it? The embedded growth principle. It needs to keep growing. That's what everybody is invested literally in. Well, how is it? going to do that. They're not going to do it with the market they've already got on lock. For Nike, that's men. It's one of the few apparel providers that's dominant with men. Most of their customers are men. Men are now boring to them. What's exciting to them? Well, it's the undecided whale of female customers, the customer that buys most apparel in the world or in the United States. And so they become obsessed with that. Unfortunately, the way they try to woo that market is with these aforementioned cringe ads that I don't think appeal to women at all. I don't think there are a lot of women who look at the TV and see a teenager lecturing about the patriarchy and talking about the US women's national basketball team. And they're suddenly uh, convinced they need to buy Nike. So there's the business incentive to do so. But I do think a lot of the tenor and a lot of the tone is not being influenced by business practicality. It's more this odd psychology combined again with what's happening at every institution, which is you have young employees who are quite uh, activist and try to keep pushing their message to the forefront of the companies. And this just gets back to the point. I mean, the truth is when I, I kind of threw it out to the listeners, like what questions would you want to ask? Like the dominant question that I just got from tons of people was how do you 
you keep like a normal person perspective <laughs> like in sports writing. And this is just one of those things. It's just like I said, it sounds like a normal person thing to say. This just seems kind of like common sense, but you would not find this anywhere in sports writing these days. This was the piece that you wrote that I was like, okay, fine. I'm in as a subscriber. So my last question would be, I try to be one of those Substack subscribers who like writes to the people I subscribe to. And I'm like, you're working too hard. Like take a couple weeks off and like be a normal person. And I, I know that's not the standard experience, I guess, for Substack proprietors, but you happen to be just like extraordinarily prolific. So I'm assuming that, you know, Substack's your main gig these days, but I did love the Victory Machine. So are there any, you know, big kind of larger scale projects on the horizon? Well, I actually, to be honest, I don't think I've talked about this publicly. As I was starting the Substack, I was in talks to do a second book and I bowed out. It was a hard decision. Uh, I, I really wanted to do a second book, but once I started working with the Substack, it became obvious to me, oh, this is fairly absorbing. You're your own business. You've got to think about a whole range of issues and there just isn't enough bandwidth. It became clear to me that I was going to rob Peter to pay Paul and both things would ultimately suffer. And I was so excited about the Substack that at that point, it wasn't a hard decision for me. That's where I want to put my energy into. I mean, it was a little hard. I walked away from, I, I hadn't signed the contract, but the advance was there. And I ultimately said no, but that's what I'm trying to do. I, I'm trying to be the opposite of penny wise pound foolish these days, uh, especially now that I sense that I'm operating without a net and whatever I do needs to help me in the long term to do what I want to do and say what I want to say. And as you said, remain a normal person, which I, I think that's funny. I don't know a lot of people who know me uh, who, who would characterize me as normal. <laughs> <laughs> but somehow, I guess my abnormalities contribute to normal takes. It's like amazing. We were saying this before the pod, but it is mind blowing to me that in 2021, the golden arbitrage opportunity is just be normal. Like, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, because I mean, it's all the cliches, but it's because social media is so deranging. I mean, it creates completely maniacal consensus and you can almost feel it sometimes. You can feel kind of the raw animal terror that your colleagues must be experiencing when there's something in the news that is especially graphic or there's a certain emotional tenor to it. I remember after the Rittenhouse verdict came out, I was just watching my timeline and it was clear to me, at least a lot of people were just responding to vibes. That's what it was to be. It was Twitter vibes. I, I looked at it and thought, you didn't watch the trial. You didn't watch the trial. You didn't watch the trial. But there is an animal terror right now for some of you. Some of you are true believers. Some of you are like really angry about this for whatever reason. But others, I do think, try to fall in line and match the mood. And there's something about that medium that in media creates an utterly deranged mood. And then if you say anything in opposition, you say the obvious thing you become piggy and Lord of the Flies. Actually, like Tyler Cowan at George Mason University is one of my favorite podcasters. He coined the term for that mood affiliation. What most people are doing all the time is sort of attracting to a mood rather than analyzing a given set of circumstances. That's a good one. That's a good coinage. That's why that guy has a, uh, a successful old school blog. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's prime territory. I'm not joking. I'm not joking, man. If you've got a blog that you have carried through from the olden times to now, in a world that's so mediated through Facebook and Twitter and these uh, these platforms have gobbled up the internet, uh, if you have a shred of internet that people come to as a destination, it's pretty impressive. That's what I'm talking about. Well, 
Even I love House of Strauss. Everyone go out and subscribe. It's absolutely worth every single penny. And uh, Ethan, thank you so much for being here. Uh, this is great. Thanks for having me. Why care about sports? Is it just a way to pass the time? Well, it could be. And if that's what it is to you, then that's great. But I actually think we can be more ambitious here. Sports is something that brings us together, like Ethan said, and that's important in a balkanizing world. But I think it's also one of the last areas in American life where popular, moving storytelling gets done. And the ability to tell stories, to ask about the world, not just how does it work, but what does it mean, is essential for recovering a sense of mission and purpose for our society. In fact, the other great source of purposeful storytelling in society is, yep, traditional religion, which is why I think that faith and sports fandom, at least like Ethan says, when taken in moderation, like ahem, a normal person, are actually natural allies. So go out there, take in a game, and when you do, try to ask a bit more of yourself. We should try to ask a bit more of ourselves than just, I'm here to relax. And I bet if you give it a shot, it'll be well worth our while. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the pod, then go ahead and be awesome. Please head into Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts and give us a rating. Five stars only. Because it really helps people find the show. And last note, this is the uh, the last episode with uh, Engineer Paul. Our amazing Engineer Paul is moving on to uh, bigger and better things. We're so excited for him, and we're really excited to welcome in Engineer Gilad. It's going to be an amazing good faith effort journey with him. All right, that's it for now. This is Ari Lam making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice, because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Galad Brownstein. This is a Soul Shop podcast, presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at soulshopstudios.com slash goodfaitheffort. For more information about Soul Shop, follow Soul Shop on Twitter at Soul Shop Studios and on Instagram at Soul Shop underscore studios. And check out soulshopstudios.com. 